Hello and welcome to the Women in ERP podcast. I'm your host, Abigail Allman, founder of the Women in ERP community. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Stephanie Poor. Stephanie is a huge advocate for Women in ERP and also sales director for IFS. Hi, Abby. Joining us today is Anne Blakely. Anne is the managing partner at Baker Tilly Digital. Thank you for coming on to work, Anne. So excited to join you today. Thanks for having me. Anne is our first international guest hailing from Milwaukee in the USA and we're so excited to be breaking into the US and growing the women in ERP community across continents. There's definitely a movement happening and we can't wait to be over in the US soon meeting more of our listeners. So Anne, let's get down to the the grilling. (laughs) (laughs) I'm ready. scary, I promise. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? What was life like for Anne while she was growing up? So I grew up here actually in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, really only about half a mile away from where I'm sitting today. I was the youngest of five children. I was a bit of an oops. So I had my four older siblings uh, who are all about 18 or 24 months apart from one another. And then seven years later, I came along as a, a fun surprise for my parents. And <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> uh, exactly. So I always joke that I had the benefit of sort of being the youngest and being an only child. And I also had the benefit of watching my siblings do things the hard way and 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 learn what not to do along the way. So what was your family unit like? So mom and dad. Yep. Very traditional. Yeah. Mom mostly stayed home with us kids um, as we were growing up. Uh, she always had some sort of side hustle going on. She would uh, actually very funny connection to the technology industry. She sewed computer covers back for the old CRT monitors and and the, the large keyboards and things. And she would sew these computer fabric <laughs> covers so that they didn't get dusty so that people could preserve their investment in their home computer. Oh, wow. <laughs> so your mom kind of worked a little bit in this sector. What did, What was it your dad did? Yeah, so this is actually an interesting story, and it has a lot to do why I end up in technology myself. So my father actually was in seminary for 11 years, studying to be a priest, a Catholic priest, and decided about a year before he would have been ordained that he wanted to leave the priesthood, and it just wasn't the life for him. And so he came back to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and met my mom bowling, and they lived happily ever after, um, now about 57 years of marriage. But he came out with essentially a a philosophy and a religion degree, you know, and then said, okay, well, you know, now how do I support a family? And so he actually ended up working as a school teacher and was teaching English. And then as they started to have more and more children, you know, three kids, four kids, you know, fifth kid along the way that that also wasn't going to, to cut it. And so he ended up moving into working for the school board I don't know if you have similar sort of, of structures in the UK where, you know, there'll be sort of a governing body that sits over a maybe a group of public schools and things. So we ended up moving into the school board and it was at a time when the school board decided they were going to replace one of their back office financial systems. And so he became part of an implementation of a finance system and really, really enjoyed it and really thought about this technology wave. I mean, this must have been in the early 80s, early mid 80s. 
And so he decided to go back to school. He got his MBA. So he had the, the business side of things, ended up working as a director of IT for the county that we live in, and then eventually became the director of IT for a large hospital system, was doing an implementation at that hospital system and was tapped on the shoulder from the consulting company that was helping them to implement their financials for him to come and be a you know sort of subject matter expert in finance for the consulting company. So he went to work for, uh, it's actually a Canadian owned firm called CGI. So this was all going on, this sort of evolution of his career as I was growing up. And, you know, he would come home, you know, when I was in high school and say, Annie, you really need to look into technology. There's, there's going to be so many jobs and, you know, women in technology, especially, I mean, you're going to be able to write your ticket, you know, if you can learn the business side as well as the technology and, and be that translator of requirements, that's going to be your ticket. That's an amazing uh-huh. journey your dad's been on as well. Like, mm-hmm. And to be promoting that to you, that's amazing. What a good guy. Yeah, isn't that funny? From priest to school teacher to, <laughs> to IT consultant. Did you study technology at college then, Anne? Yeah, so that's what was interesting. So I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, which is a very large university, you know, something like 60,000 students or something like that. And the path at that point in time was to go into the business school. And you had to take all of your generals, you know, whether that's accounting and finance and HR and management and, you know, all of the different disciplines in business And then when you got to the point where you could declare a major, then you could start to specialize a little bit more. And there was actually a PhD graduate on a grant that was looking at building out a new curriculum that crossed over from the the computer science school into the business school. And they were calling it information systems analysis and design or something like that. And so I was able to to actually declare that as a, a second major. So my first major was management and human resources with a second major in this hybrid program that was between computer science and, and the business school. And I was the first uh, graduating class with that as an actual designation on your on your diploma, if you will. So I did get to have exposure to actual you know, computer science development. I was taking C++ and some of the other programming languages that are you know, probably well on their way out by this point in time. <laughs> They'll never go out. <laughs> well, how many women were on your course with you? I would venture to say less than 10. Wow. Um, you know, there were maybe hand, a couple hundred. Yeah. 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 Not many. Bad, isn't it? I had far more in the management and human resources side of my degree, but the computer science school was was primarily men. It would be interesting to know what that stat like, what it would look like today. I bet it's not evolved that much, sadly. No. So you got your degree. How did you end up at Baker Tilly? So when I hit junior or senior year at university, I started to think about internships. And the consulting company that my father was working at, CGI, ended up having a project for uh, the state government in Wisconsin um, that I was able to get an internship on. And so I started interning there um, while I was finishing my degree and ended up, it was right before 
right as the recession was hitting in 2000 in the United States. And all of my friends were getting their job offers pulled. And so I was actually interviewing at a lot of, of consultancies, you know, in the IT software design space. And as sort of a last minute, oh, oh crap kind of moment, I decided to take a role full time where I was doing my internship because I was just so scared that my my job was going to get pulled and I didn't have any seniority and they didn't know me and, you know, all of those kinds of things. So, um, so I had a, an amazing start to my career there and I ended up after fi- finishing out that project, I ended up on a project for the state of Alaska. For those of you that, that don't have United States geography, it's very far away from Wisconsin. It's very cold. <laughs> <laughs> much further. <laughs> and yes. And very cold. I was going to say very cold. <laughs> And so I was working as a team lead, um, designing actually a child welfare information system. So tracked child abuse, neglect, foster care adoptions, and all the provider payments around that. And so it was very fascinating because here I have this technical degree, but I'm working all day long with social workers and understanding, you know, what happens if there's suspected, you know, child abuse in a home and what are all the rules and protocols and then trying to build a system that can then automate that and make that more efficient and then therefore hopefully improve the outcomes for these kids. And so it was it was really great, but very intense. And in the state of Alaska, I, because I was so far away, I was technically on travel, but I could only come home five days every three weeks. And so I would be there working, you know, on project site and then would come home for five days and then back again. So after two years of doing that, I absolutely loved it. I loved it. It was a great, great company, great job, everything like that. But I was, you know, sort of hitting that age where I wanted to maybe get married and I didn't really want to marry anyone in Alaska. And <laughs> it must have been quite emotionally draining as well, like just constantly backwards and forwards. But also, I mean, I th- for me, the software I work on is very much business related. So you're always, it's always, let's be honest, how you can make the company more money and make them more efficient. Whereas that actually impacts human lives and mm-hmm. that comes with a responsibility as well. So that on top of traveling must be, must've been quite intense. It was, it definitely was. And, you know, and so I just, um, yeah, I guess I just kind of got homesick and I was missing too many things, you know, friends were getting married and, you know, birthday parties and, you know, all of that sort of thing. And and so I thought about transferring, but I just, I was too far ingrained in that project and, you know, the client didn't really want to let me go. And so I ended up t- deciding to take a look at new opportunities. And that's when I landed at, at Baker Tilly. And that's been about 19 or 20 years ago now. So <laughs> feels like a lifetime. So you focused on HCM and ERP practices. So you've helped to grow those practices out with major alliances with the likes of Oracle and IFS, um, Plex and Deltex as well. So tell us how you manage that vast partner ecosystem of vendor partners and customers. It's been an interesting evolution because, you know, when I started at Baker Tilly, we had a handful of clients that were really looking hard at um, HR and HCM transformation. You know, I think those suites of products and technologies maybe were a little bit further behind from, you know, financials and operations kinds of systems. And so all these really kind of innovative and niche 
vendors that just focused on HR started to sprout up in the marketplace. And, and so my evolution was, was sort of following the trends of, of just sort of, I would say, cloud software in general, where the new capabilities get incubated with these small startups. And then as they reach some maturity, then suddenly the large software vendors start to acquire <laughs> the smaller companies. And then, you know, my consulting practice then sort of evolved with that. That's sort of been the evolution in terms of navigating the ecosystem, being on the consulting side and being an advocate for what do our clients need and what are the biggest sort of business gaps and challenges that they have, we're able to sort of view the the vendor ecosystem through their eyes. And, you know, what's sort of needed by our clients is where we've gravitated towards and sort of building out capability. So so we had some sort of niche partnerships in HR. Um, Those systems were actually acquired by Oracle, um, which allowed us to then build out a broader Oracle capability. But, you know, all of these systems, some are better in certain industries than others. You know, there's not one size fits all. And so we really had to take a look at, you know, from a Baker Tilly lens, what are the industries that we serve deeply, especially on the, you know, the tax and audit side, um, but as well on the consulting side, and then create capability with alliances in the marketplace that could fill that need. So manufacturing and distribution is the largest industry that Baker Tilly serves. And so having a relationship with a company like IFS allowed us to have much more deep, you know, industry specific capability, which is really what makes it powerful for our clients. You know, similarly, you know, we have a lot of government contractor clients, clients that are trying to do business, you know, with um, the U.S. government in this instance, but abroad as well. And that's where the Dell Tech relationship, because of the specialization in how they do cost accounting. So, you know, our our vendor evolution and sort of specialization expertise in managing those alliances really was driven and, and born from what pain are our clients feeling <laughs> and yeah. how do you, you know, how do you close those gaps? And do you have plans to expand that portfolio further? Yeah. So we have a what we call a, a scan mechanism, an innovation scan mechanism in place where we're always looking at what are the new technologies that are hitting market every year. And we use the opportunity when we bring in our interns over the summer months to actually refresh that scan every year. And so we go out and take a look at, you know, who are all the up and coming new vendors? What problems are they trying to solve? You know, which industries are they focused at? We're looking at the the research and development, the R&D budgets of the vendors that we have relationships and where are they aiming those? You know, what expansion opportunities are they seeing in the marketplace? Um, and what problems are they trying to solve? And then we're watching all of the M&A sort of activity of, you know, vendor consolidation and, you know, who's moving into kind of larger suites. And then we use that as an opportunity to then decide, make investment decisions of where we expand. So yes, we're always expanding and, and growing our portfolio. We also unfortunately have the ones that are sort of end of life, you know, that maybe get superseded or or replaced or acquired and go in a different direction that that sort of no longer serves our serve our clients. It's really interesting that you use your interns to drive that. That's what a great learning experience. I was just thinking that. It's a really good way of doing it because it's it's so you can get so bogged down in the day-to-day and the business as usual that having your eye on the strategic and, and having that almost like seasonal workforce coming in to, to keep your eye on the future is an excellent way of doing it. Well, it's a fun way to them to, for them to meaningfully contribute to because – you know, internships are six weeks long, eight weeks long. And so how do you come in and plug into a client engagement 
you know, at the right time and have enough context to be able to make a difference. And, and this is something that's super impactful and is used. So it's, it's been popular. Just out of interest in terms of the intern program that you run, are you, are you seeing an equal split between kind of the female and male or is, has that changed? You know, you said you've been there for 20 years. Has that changed over the two, two decades or so that you've been uh, working there? You know, what's interesting. So we have, I would say two main profiles. This is oversimplifying. And if my recruiters were listening to this call, they would, um, <laughs> they would, they would call BS on this, but <laughs> we probably have, you know, 27 different job descriptions or something, but um, we really fall into sort of two categories. We hire for functional talent and we hire for, or what I would say, core technical talent. So in the functional side, it's much more of the business analyst, requirements definition, testing, configuration of business applications. On the technical side, much more, you know, data conversion, you know, higher, uh, deeper analytics, actual full stack development for extensions on on applications and things. And so if I look across, you know, sort of the, the all the functional roles we hire and then all the technical roles we hire, I would say functional, we're actually more women than men at this point. I think when I looked at the last campus class, it was something like 60-40, where there were actually more women on the technical side, it's reversed. So it's it's still relatively even, but it's still a little bit more male dominated in terms of, you know, more the the hardcore kind of programming data side. And that starts from a young age anyway, like it, you know, but it is interesting, but they sound like great starts anyway, in terms of where you're at. Yeah. You know, the bigger problem that we've been watching um, and keeping an eye on um, at Baker Tilly at the beginning stages, really at sort of the intern into consultant, into senior consultant, um, it's pretty even all the way along. It's really after manager um, when you're about, you know, seven, eight years into your career, that that's where some of the disparity starts to happen. And so a lot of the programs um, in terms of like, we have this program that's called Grow, Growth and Retention of Women, you know, we're really focused on um, working on even evening that out on the back half of the career in what do we have to do to sort of make um, choices more accessible and make flexibility more of an option as people are thinking about, you know, having families and, and those kinds of things as well. So on that point then, as a female, what are the main challenges that you have faced personally in this industry? Honestly, I feel like sometimes we're our own worst enemy. You know, we feel like we have to do it all ourselves and we have to have, you know, sort of an A plus grade in, in just about everything that we do. And, and so f- for me, it was really an exercise of letting some things go. I had to recognize that I needed more help at home, you know, just outsourcing things that I would absolutely love to do myself, but, you know, in this, the scheme of priorities and, and balancing both career and the kids, it wasn't as high value at that point in time. And so I think getting help, I think having super honest and almost selfish conversations with your partner uh, about, you know, kind of what your, your intended goals are. I, it was probably one of our first dates. I, um, my husband is now retired. He was an attorney and he worked at a big firm when, when we met and, and I, it was one of our first dates. And I said to him, you know, I, I want to be a partner and you know, that, that means this, that, and whatever. And he's like, great. As long as I don't have to be, I'll do anything. 
because <laughs> he was he was sort of you know feeling a little bit uh disillusioned by you know the idea of the partner track on the on the law side of things and so it worked out okay but i i think by setting those ground rules pretty early in terms of what i wanted it it just helped you know it helped to kind of set the stage for how we divided and conquered our world i'm going through that right now so because we like to be honest on this show, it's it's really difficult because maybe I didn't set out with the intentions of my career going to the, the direction that they're going in now. And so we're having an awkward conversation that we didn't have early on. <laughs> <laughs> but I've now decided to be selfish. <laughs> but it's great you're having the conversation, Abby, in terms of like, if you were, if you didn't, and you'd probably be sat there really frustrated. So I think it's better to be honest and aim for the the world than why not. And it doesn't mean that there has to be winners and losers. You know, it's not like I'm selfish, you're not. It's more about just what do I need in this moment? What do you need in that moment? You know, how do we have our moments together? How do we coordinate our moments? <laughs> you know, those kinds of things. I'm sure there's been probably been times also where it's been the reverse, right? So it's all, and there might be in the future. So it's swings and roundabouts. It's- yeah, it's all about balance, isn't it? That's right. But we've just employed a uh, a cleaner, so see outsource that oh, shit, man. You got it. That's number one. <laughs> so you have two children, Anne. How have you found being a working mum? Yeah, well, like everything, ups and downs for sure. Moments of feeling guilty and inadequate for sure. But I would say, you know, all in all, I think it's been a really positive experience. I my kids are now thirteen and fifteen, so I feel like I'm maybe on the other side of what my husband and I called the fog, um, which was pretty much from newborn to maybe seven years old, <laughs> where you're just, you know, kind of all hands on deck trying to to form these little humans and they're sort of attached to you, you know, constantly. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe a little bit of, you know, an ounce of perspective just because I'm on the other side of it right now. But I think, you know, I received a piece of advice actually from a mentor. I used to be part of this uh, women in technology group associated with the Oracle ecosystem um, when I was building out our Oracle cloud practice. And and I was on a an overnight the night before one of the large conferences, the women in technology group would get together and we'd do something active, go for a, you know, a bike ride, you know, through the Grand Canyon or something the the, the day before the conference. And we were on the bus in transit and she leaned over and she said, you look tired. And I said, yep, I am tired. You know, the kids didn't sleep. I had a long flight. I took this flight, which was inopportune, but it allowed me to, you know, do X, Y, and Z at home. And she said, yeah, I, I had a feeling um, that it was maybe kid related. She said, I, I want to give you a piece of advice um, that is going to sound crazy and mean. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm here for it. And she said, don't ever apologize to your kids about work. Don't ever apologize because you're not actually sorry. You're choosing this every day. And it was like sort of a strange piece of advice out of nowhere, but I can't tell you how many times in the last, you know, eight, nine, 10 years that I've thought of that because, you know, as you're juggling priorities and, you know, as I'm, you know, maybe packing the suitcase on a Sunday night to head out for a, a kickoff meeting at a client or something on Monday and the kids are a little bit melancholy about me leaving. It's it's so tempting to apologize to them. But instead, I decided to choose those opportunities over the last decade to say, I know this is really hard. However, I'm doing this really exciting thing. Do you want to hear about the client I'm meeting? You know, this is the role I'm playing in the project. I'm really excited because I'm going to learn this or I get to go with this team who I really like. 
and, you know, I'll send you pictures or, you know, whatever it was. And I think that's made a big impact on them because they have, they connect better to like what I am actually doing. And they also learned pretty early that it's not all about them, (laughs) you know, lots about them, but it's not all about them. Such good advice. I was going to say, it also allows you to become that real role model as well as being obviously their mom, like they're seeing what hard work is and kind of like what a good work ethic looks like. So there's so many different lessons within that as well. Do you think that they have been inspired by your sort of choice of industry? Do they do they have an affinity to STEM subjects? You know, they are both very, very strong in math. Um, one strong in science, the other not so much. They are not so far gravitating towards the technology industry, um, but they're also in that zone of life where my little one um, kind of waffles between wanting to be a waitress and wanting to be a teacher and wanting to be a clothing designer. So <laughs> Listen, I still don't really know what I want to do when I grow up. Yeah. So. <laughs> I relate. (laughs) I will say, though, the one impact it has had, I love to travel. I obviously traveled a lot for work in my career. And then as many times as I could, you know, we would take advantage of that. And and maybe my husband and the kids would fly out and meet me where I was. And we would, you know, extend if it was on a holiday or something for them. And so they've traveled quite a bit. And they will say all the time things like, you know, so-and-so went to visit there and they loved it. And I told them, you should move there. And that was something that our kids figured out really early. We were in, I think it was Italy or something. Cassidy was four. And she looked at me and said, who gets to decide who lives here? And I was like, you get to decide. And my job is to show you as many places as possible so you can figure out where you want to go. But it costs money. So, <laughs> so you got to yeah. figure that out. Yeah. Maybe they'll be coming back to tech after all. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, you know, so I try to do the, you know, exposure therapy, right? You know, it's like, yeah, this is, this is good. And you get to make choices, but you also have to be able to afford those choices. So, yeah. So going back to your role at Baker Tilly, firstly, for all of those listeners that aren't sure of what Baker Tilly does, I know there's a little bit of a, are they accountants? Are they finance? What is Baker Tilly Digital and how do they differ? So Baker Tilly, the broader Baker Tilly, is a professional services firm, which includes the main service lines are tax, assurance, and consulting. So everybody knows what taxes are. Assurance is all the auditing of of, of an organization's financial statements. And then consulting, we have a mixture of industry-based management consulting, Um, consulting of the finance organization itself, and then technology consulting. So I lead all of our digital solutions, which roll up into a child brand of the larger Baker Tilly called Baker Tilly Digital. So it's really an outward market facing presence with all of our technology related services um, that we offer our clients from a consulting perspective. And that Baker Tilly digital brand is actually the international brand for our Baker Tilly international network of which Baker Tilly US is a member of. And I both remember Vanilla Solutions, which was a UK IFS partner. And did you, I guess you acquired Vanilla? We did. Yes, we did. Uh, One year ago in May, actually. Wow. Yeah, it's been fantastic. They actually, when they joined, we have another large presence in the UK. Um, We have a London office, 
largely focused on yeah. forensics. <laughs> yeah, you probably have <laughs> meeting with the the teams. Yeah, we also do a lot of forensic accounting um, and consulting out of the the UK office as well. You've got a very good reputation, and uh, both with the clients I work with, and also with all the employees at Baker Tilly, they they absolutely love the 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 kind of work culture and environment. So oh, good. It's always positive feedback. <laughs> When I joined Baker Tilly, I was consultant number 25. I think we have 3,000 consultants today. And, you know, it's, it's the growth has been so fun and so fun to be entrepreneurial and think about what do our clients need and kind of evolving our services and technologies and things in accordance to that. But it's how do you keep that feeling of being part of a small, you know, a small organization where you really have impact? And that's what we've been trying to do as we grow. And I think so far, pretty successfully. You know, always room for improvement. (laughs) (laughs) It all sounds good. So as managing partner, what does that mean? And what does your day-to-day look like? My big joke to my team is that being a managing partner means that you don't actually get to do work anymore. (laughs) We don't actually get to do. (laughs) (laughs) I have to be careful for who's listening to this, but uh, no, it's, you know, it's that transition of, you know, really being client facing in market, you know, delivering the actual technical solutions and, and being that translation agent between, you know, what problems do the client have and, and how are we going to implement solutions to help them fix that? And, you know, and then manage them through that change journey. I'm not as hands-on with that anymore. So, you know, being a managing partner essentially means all of the partners that own those practices now roll up to me. And so I'm doing a little bit more of the, you know, looking out, you know, three to five years, where are we going? You know, as we were talking earlier, what new bets are we going to make? What new technologies are coming out? I get to lead all of our acquisitions, you know, more of those, I would say, kind of across digital um, initiatives. Um, We have a big initiative to build um, additional offshore capability that all of our teams can take advantage of. We're driving a deeper level of technical competency models into all the teams. We're looking at a whole host of acquisitions. I get to do all the fun things like budget planning, forecasting, <laughs> reporting. Um, I was not Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just it's it it's so my you know the job has evolved. So on those those rare moment moments where I get to still participate in a client call or a sales call or uh you know review some deliverables because somebody happens to be on holiday or something i i revel in those moments now <laughs> <laughs> a little bit sort of a step back to reality so at Vegatil, you have the grow initiative that you mentioned earlier now grow stands for the growth and retention of women which is one of our own initiatives with work why do you think that we need to be pushing as a collective for these two outcomes for women? So I think back to a joke I made earlier about, you know, sometimes we're our own worst nightmare. I think, you know, helping to give a voice and courage and understanding of of options and choices is important because, you know, we like to be good at what we do. We like to know that we can handle what's coming around the corner you know, we like to show well. And I think to the extent that we can provide more resources, more open conversations, more exploration to help people dream beyond um, maybe where they are today, I, I think that's just such a important cause because we certainly have the capability. It's just sometimes we don't 
we don't get selfish enough to to ask for what for more or for what's next. That's it. And so how are you doing that? What are you offering women? We have a whole, I mean, from a programmatic standpoint, from a growth standpoint, we have lots of resources that we're offering. So we've built out, we have our, obviously our national grow program. Um, one of the women, female partners in digital is actually the leader of our national grow initiative. Her name's Amanda Klein. She's fantastic. And then we've built essentially sectors um, for all of our different offices so that there can be more of a local presence. And they're doing everything from um, networking opportunities, lots of different book clubs, providing resources on, you know, sort of different navigation techniques, you know, way to just kind of plan and manage to ask, et cetera, to create the conversation. Um, And then we also have a grow mentorship matching program where you can essentially submit a request to be either a mentor or a mentee and, you know, sort of talk about what it is that your, your goals are, or, you know, what you're looking to receive perspective on and you get matched with others. And so it's a way to create, I think, bigger networks of, of women across the firm um, to just learn from varying experiences and, and different goals and aspirations and, you know, be able to, to get some of those perspectives And then there's also a a huge component around, you know, how do we elevate to leadership, you know, all of the leading indicators metrics to show health of a successful pipeline of successors and candidates moving through the ranks um, that represent the female population. Um, So it's really, it's sort of the kind of the softer side of things in terms of teaching, networking and providing, you know, those opportunities and as well as sort of holding our firm accountable for the metrics to make sure that we're keeping an eye on it and and creating um, enough opportunity. What, what things do you think are helping with that retention piece? What movements are you making within Baker Tilly to help retain women? Because a lot of us drop out of the workforce. I did it myself for a short while. How do we stop that from happening? Just creating the, the conversation about flexibility, both flexibility in terms of okay, I'm pedal to the metal to get to the manager level, but now I need to take a little bit of a a detour and I want to slow my progression down a little bit. Maybe I want to move to part-time. Maybe I want to move to internal assignments, you know, for a little while so that I can control my schedule a little bit better, you know, whatever that might be, that that doesn't somehow deter from then ramping back up again you know, after you get through, you know, whatever transition you're going through. And this is offered, by the way, not just for women that are having kids, but also, you know, men that are having children, you know, you're navigating end of life scenarios with parents, you know, that you're being, you know, having to care give for. So it's just creating that notion of eliminating that upper out kind of mentality and more of like up sideways, take a step, stop, pause, step back and and removing this the stigma from that. I know I was the first woman on a flexible work arrangement, so I don't work on Fridays. I haven't since my 15-year-old was born, and that has created just an incredible amount of of relief for us at home then we could have sort of the nanny Monday through Thursday, but then Friday was my day to be able to when they were young be home with the kids. Now it's my day to take them to doctor's appointments or be the one that gets to drive carpool to soccer practice or you know whatever it is and then also kind of gives you that extra opportunity to sort of get life in order before the weekend hits 
so that, you know, you can sort of be fully present as a parent. Life admin. Out of interest, is that day respected? Because that's always a, a difficult one as well. Yeah. So we we call it the two-way value proposition. You know, like it obviously requires flexibility, you know, especially when I was client facing. If there is an emergency, the sky is falling, systems are down, something's happening, you know, I have to sort of recognize and honor my commitment to the clients, you know, in that moment. Um, but also that I have permission to say, is this something that's urgent for today? And you would, wouldn't believe, you know, probably nine and a half times out of 10, it's no, Monday is fine. You know, I just happened to be asking you today because I had a moment to ask you for it. And so I think giving the permission to create that space for yourself. And normalizing it. Yeah, absolutely. We're actually doing a firm-wide pilot right now. Actually, I think it's about half of the firm um, has opted into the pilot. Digital is about two months into it for doing more of a a flexible Friday um, for the entire team Um, and really trying to get away from having lots of scheduled meetings and things and having that be a day that you can catch up on your continuing education or, you know, taking that training class or getting your schedule for the next week sorted or find, you know, finishing that deliverable or whatever it is. So we're trying to extend that so that it's not just it's this. The, it's the headspace, isn't it? It's just it having is. a day where it's not back-to-back calls where you're just constantly in demand. That's a really cool policy. Why do you personally feel it's it's important to support the re- growth and retention of women in ERP? So from a personal perspective, do you see the inequality? Have you experienced it too much? You know, honestly, I have not personally experienced it in my leadership as I was growing up in ERP. My very first leader was a woman, but then I worked largely for men. But I worked for people that were just like, hey, you can do the job. Great get in here, kid, let's go. You know, I'm going to teach you everything I can. It didn't really matter. And, you know, the notion of the flexibility that I asked for when I started to have kids or one other agreement I always had to have with my leaders was I'm a crier. I cry a ton. And it's not because I'm sad. It's because I am mad or frustrated or feel particularly passionate (laughs) about something. And so I would always just be super open about it. Like, Hey, like when stuff hits the fan at the client, like you will see tears and, you know, just cruise on by, like, I don't need anything from you. I don't need you to solve anything. That's so good. Cause I do that. And it's like an emotional investment, isn't it? Almost. I was given a tip a couple of weeks ago that if you put your tongue on the top of your mouth, it stops you from crying. (laughs) You know, next time. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. So, you know, I think I didn't feel that a lot, you know, from my, I would say from my chain of command growing up, I, I have definitely been in instances where I felt that in the clients, you know, certain industries that were maybe a little bit more tenured in age, just some different cultures and things where, you know, I would be the one presenting and then they would answer to the men in the room or, you know, not make eye contact with me and and, and those kinds of things. But I always just took the the tact of, you know, at some point, you know, my knowledge is going to show through and, you know, you just kind of have to, to stay the course and continue to have ownership. I refuse to sort of let it kind of get me down. I don't see as much of that today, to be honest, like for my team members. And I'm hyper vigilant about watching for that or protecting and making sure that my female leaders are getting the respect that they deserve and not being spoken over and things. But 
it's not happening as much, I would say. I think definitely it depends on your organization. It sounds like Baker Tilly is a very forward thinking, supportive organization. So perhaps it isn't happening so much there. I completely agree with you, Anna. I, I for, for me, I don't see it within IFS or my company. It's it's when I'm client facing in certain industries and it's usually kind of, let's call it quote unquote, the old school kind of industrial manufacturing or something like that, where exactly, you know, I've definitely had it in the last few years where I've I've been presenting and then someone, the questions have all gone back to a male colleague in the room. And you're like, hello, <laughs> look at my eyes. It's, but then it's also educating the, the, your colleagues, which mine do now and say, well, actually Steph can answer that. And it's, it, you know, it is fascinating, but it, it, I don't, a lot of it I don't think is intentional. I think it's just what they're used to. Yeah. I personally think, you know, I think a balanced team that brings different perspectives and different approaches, you know, for us, especially in consulting, when we're really trying to think critically about a, a problem that a client is having and sort of bringing the best idea forward for how to, you know, how to fix that. It's awesome when we have teams that are mixed, you know, men, women, older, younger, different cultural perspectives, different industry perspectives. And I just, it creates just a a much more solid team. It's sometimes it's uncomfortable, you know, it means we are kind of duking it out a little bit or getting frustrated with one another because we have different approaches. But I think at the end of the day, you know, for our clients, it's certainly, I think they benefit. Thank you so much for joining us, Anne. It's been a really lovely podcast and really interesting to get to know you and and everything that you do at Baker Tilly. So thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Great to meet you both. And certainly let me know how I can help your expansion into the US. Yeah, absolutely. We'll be over there soon. Coming over in March. So I'll see you then. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) 